So today is the first in our new series of Royal Blood, called Royal Blood. Um, looking in towards ahead towards Easter over the next five weeks, we're going to be sort of situated down here in the book of Leviticus. Uh, sort of first five chapters. It's been our habit at Christchurch over the last couple of years anyway um, to try, try and learn something more about the cross uh, from, from a different corner of the Bible. And I guess that's the certainly something you learn as you as you fire into the bible you realize that this this idea of the cross can be seen from from every angle of the bible and actually as you look at it from every angle of the bible it will it will shed some more light on this on this beautiful story that changes our life so this you know we want to just want to get as much out of the story as the cross of the cross as we can so we, we find that it makes sense of the bible but you know more than that the cross will make sense of us it's funny isn't it as we go through our lives that we you know, this is the, a question that that burns away in the back of our minds. You know, what will what would make sense of our lives? And it's the you know, it's the cross. This is what the Bible says. That the cross is the thing that will not just not just be some nice story to accompany your life, but it will actually make sense of it. The cross will make sense of you know all of human history of of everything. So that's sort of the premise for certainly today's talk and perhaps the series beyond this that we might learn something more about the cross from every corner of the Bible and we're going to try and stop in um, in sort of three spots come into land in three places three sort of things to, to consider the first one sort of bullet points for you to think about God wants to dwell with us that's the first thing God wants to dwell with us and I kind of you, you, you think about that and you kind of say oh yeah okay I know this is something about the Bible I know I don't need to come to church to know that and I think I've actually comprehended what that means and what the impact of that is for me. But actually, it's massive when you think about that. What it means for God, what it means for us to know that God wants to be with us, to dwell with us, and we're going to think through that perhaps a bit more thoroughly than than we have in the past. And the second place we're going to come into land is that sin costs more than you think. God wants to dwell with us, but there is a cost to that. And it costs more than you think. Sin costs more than you think. And the third point will be that somebody has to pay. That's kind of where we'll wrap up. God wants to dwell with us. Sin costs more than you think. And somebody has to pay. So we're going to consider uh, the subject of sacrifice. That's where we're going to stay. And I, I thought as a way into that as a platform for thinking about that, we're going to think on the film Saving Private Ryan. I don't know if you've seen this film. A game-changing film that came out. 20 years ago, yep, 20 years ago, makes you feel, makes you feel old, feels like yesterday, and yet it's 20 years ago, and it had that kind of perfect recipe for success, you know, the kind of the, the trinity of great sort of film dudes, Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, and John Williams, Spielberg behind the camera, Hanks running around, have been shot at in front of it, and John Williams just adding, you know, beautiful classical strings to draw a tear out of a glass eye just really making the film come to life and it was just to the point really where epic the idea of an epic film had, had got back in vogue so you know people were happy to come along to the cinema the cinemas were full for saving private ryan it was just this big epic blockbuster and it was a landmark film it was preserved in the national film registry for its cultural and historical significance it was a game changer Certainly a game changer of how people
people of my generation uh, would consider con had considered war. It's in the World War Two, and the plot of the film is this, sort of the, the leading character or the um, the the basis of the film is this guy called James Ryan. It's based on a true story, obviously. Names and faces are changed, as they often are, as, as, as these things become films. It tells the story of four brothers uh, during the D-Day landings. And, and over the, you know, this, the next couple of weeks, uh, three of these four brothers die. You know, right at the start of the, of the Second World War, right there at the beginning. And there's one, and there's one left. And the American High Command get wind of this story. They get, they get wind of this event. And they say this is too big a cost. This is too big a sacrifice and for one, for one mother to bear. The idea that a war would cost all her children was too big a sacrifice. And Captain John H. Miller, who's played by Hanks, is tasked with organising a team of seven men to find this guy in the middle of the world, our world war. And you've got this storyline that goes on that seven men are behind enemy lines trying to save one guy and slowly you know as the film progresses and, and and the trauma of it is that you get to know you get to know these guys you kind of get to know their backstory they make you laugh you invest in them and you engage in them and one by one these men are killed off in an attempt to save this surviving brother and the film bookends with the surviving brother who's now now an old man, he's a veteran of the war, and he's surrounded by his large family, but he's, he's taken himself off to pay his respects um, to the gravesides of the fallen soldiers on you know, these, big, these big war graves in Normandy, and he's looking, he's looking round about him at his, you know, the blessing of his family, but also at the tragedy of all these lives that have been lost so that he might end up surviving. And he turns and he looks to his wife and he says to her, am I, am I worth this? And he kind of breaks down, sort of bends a knee as he says it, and he says, am I worth this? And I guess as I, as I watched that film, if you would have asked me before I went into the cinema that day, and maybe a lot of people like me, if they knew about war, they would have said, yeah, I know. I know about war, and I did. I knew about war. I'd I'd read about it at school. I'd done two years of GCSE history, where I was at least semi-engaged for a lot of the time, reading through the textbooks. And I could have told you the statistics. I could have told you ballparks for the number of deaths, and I could have t told you times and dates and leading characters and things like that. And I could have. I, I knew it was significant. I knew that it mattered. But I'd never seen, I'd never felt war like that. And maybe it was the advances in cinema technology, maybe it was the way that they progressed with being able to do special effects and body wounds in, in a better way. But it was impacting. I'd never seen a man that I felt like I'd gotten to know as the film progressed, bleeding out, having morphine pumped into him by his mates, screaming, for his mum, I'd never, I'd never felt the war in that way. I'd never considered soldiers crying, scared, th throwing up, and not sleeping. And 
I guess something of the cost of the war had, had impacted me. All of a sudden, I knew more about the backstory. I knew something of the reality of it, and I had grasped. I had not grasped. I had felt for the first time the significance of sacrifice, and and was forced to consider my life in the reality of those things, the freedoms and liberties and peace that I'd enjoy that I'd not given a thought about, not a second's thought about, actually meant something slightly different. They weren't just a given. They were at least in part connected to someone living in a battlefield, lying on a floor in France. We're changed, aren't we? By a right understanding of sacrifice. And I guess that would sort of takes us into our first point, the first sort of place we want to land. Is why does there need to be sacrifice at all? Why does that even need to happen? It leads into our first point, which is this. There is, you know, there is a reason why there needs to be sacrifice, and we can trace the story back through. God wants to dwell with his people. This is the this is our first port of call. God wants to dwell with his people. I think it's a really interesting it's an interesting expression that we've used over the years, um, Christians, to describe our relationship with God. That we might say that he dwells with us, that he is near to us, or conversely that he is far away from us. It's funny, isn't it, that we of all the ways that we could describe relationship with God, one of the most frequent ones that we would use would be to say that he is he's near me seems almost overly simplistic he's near me or he's not near me he's far away from me but we do it don't we you'd think that an omnipresent god would be equidistant you'd think you can't get any closer or any further away but that's not how it feels there's been a brilliant um, bible truth that um that has come to the fore as I've studied this over the last few weeks as I've been in and out of Leviticus and trying to read you know around the Bible around about the storyline and it's this it's wherever wherever God is in the storyline of the Bible or in or in human history wherever God is in relation to his people his creation he wants to be closer wherever he is he wants to be closer if he's not with the people then he wants to be with the people. If he is with the people, then he wants to be right in the middle of the community. And if in the storyline of the Bible is in the is in the middle of the community and is he's amongst the people, is where it's at, then he wants to be at the heart of people's lives. That's what he wants. He wants to draw near. So we'll jump into the into the storyline and it's worth just catching up, seeing where we are in the storyline of Leviticus. We're just on the back of Exodus, and we remember in, in Exodus that God's people were slaves in Egypt, and in a sense were, you know, out of the, out of the literal presence of God, and and God had, had rescued them in a miraculous way. Maybe you can remember, either stories from your Sunday school or or you know from your Bible knowledge the way that God saved these people Egypt. You know the parting of the Red Sea. God delivered them through the Red Sea. God sent plagues down on Pharaoh and the Egyptian army and in just in an incredible way God saved the people and as part of the transition from being a people without the presence of God in Egypt and they move into a nation 
It changed into a nation who literally, having having in a sense been apart from God, who literally now walk with God in Exodus, or the back end of Exodus, but particularly Exodus 40, if you want to if you want to visit in your Bibles, God instructs them as he presences himself with them to make a tent so he can be there. God, God moves in. This is who God is. This is who God is revealed to be. This is this is how he works in the storyline of the Bible. God moves in. It says in Exodus 29, 46, They shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What's he saying? This is God saying, this is why I did it. All the you know, all the horror of the plagues. And the miracle of the of the parting of the sea and the, the trauma of the pulling these people out of Egypt is is that I might dwell with the people, I might be amongst the people, where the people are. I think we have in our in our churches today in the UK we have this we have a, a, a kind of a deist danger, this this real danger that hangs above us as we sort of work out our, th- our theology as Christians and as and as church, really, that God that God exists somewhere. Point, he says, pointing up to the sky, somewhere up there. So that this idea that he he creates the world and then sees it and then goes back off up to the clouds again and resides. On something cloud-like, enjoying a harp quartet and some alone time, and occasionally, uh, occasionally popping in and looking in to see how we are, and that's and that's how God is. And actually, often, I mean, I guess often that's how church uses him. That we just see him as somebody who is up there, disengaged and disinterested. And one of the one of the big pictures of the, of the Bible and one of the big pictures here we see of yeah, Exodus through Leviticus is that that's not who God is. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And we have this expression that's born out of this part of the Bible that becomes almost a descriptive word later on. I think it's right to classify it as a descriptive word. The idea of tabernacle, this idea that God tabernacles with us. God makes His home with us. The tabernacle is a, you know, is a tent for, that, that means God can stick around, and that man can exist with Him through that framework. And God, literally, in this moment, pitches up. That's what He does. He pitches up and He moves in. And so He's not just out there on the cloud. That's not the right way to think of Him. That's not His agenda. That's not His nature. When he interacts with humanity, he seeks to move in. Like that friend, when they come round to see you, there's friends that come round and they just want a cuppa. They're not even going to take their coat off. They're not staying long. They don't want to be invasive at all. They just want a cuppa. They want to be a friend in that way and then they go. God is like the friend who comes round, kind of loaded up with his own furniture. And as he comes through the door, he helps himself to a cup of tea. You notice a sleeping bag on his back and he puts his feet up on your couch and he turns the TV over and, and before you know it, in, you know, in two minutes, 
he has affected your life. That's that's what God is about. God moves in in that way. He moves into the community. He doesn't float around outside. So to walk with him is to be changed by him, is to be affected by him. God wants to be closer than you think. That's the first point. Second point is that sin costs more than you think. So what we see as the story as the story moves on is that the holy God, yeah, that's where we're at. The holy God moves in with with sinful human beings, and that is the picture that's been painted of God. It's one of the loudest uh, noises that comes out of the book of Leviticus. Is that God is holy, and you know maybe um, and this you know carrying on this idea that. That he's moving in with the people. You you know you have people. You have people that move in. Maybe you've experienced this in your life. People have moved into your house, and you've had to share accommodation with them. And there's been something necessary for you to, you know, there's been difference, and you've kind of had to work out the ground rules for how you can stay in relationship. That's been kind of key. Somebody's come into your house, you know, and they've got four dogs, and one of them bites viciously, and you and but they want relationship with you, and you'll say, okay. Okay, you can move in, you know, the, the dog that bites can live out in the shed, the other dogs can stay if you want. Those are kind of the ground rules for how we're going to make this thing work. Somebody who's got a real tidiness, you know, compulsion wants to move in and they say, look, I want to move in, I want this relationship to work, but I'm a, you know, I'm a bit weird actually. I'm a bit excessive about just how tidy I want this house to be. And, and you look at them and you go, okay, well, we want this relationship to work, so... You know, I, I'll pick up my end of the slack and I'll promise to put, you know, put my clothes away after myself, all that kind of stuff. And you try and make it work. And God moves in to where the people are at and he says, I'm holy. Not holy like, like I behave well, I've controlled my tongue, I've spent some time in a monastery and I've got myself together, I'm in a good place, you know, I'm a better person now, I've figured some stuff out. No, holy, like, that's who he is. At his very core. There's no flaw in him at all. He's the embodiment of all that is good and right. And it's not that he won't be around sin. It's not like that. It's that he can't be where sin is. There is a cost associated with this. And we can see it in the text. If you want to take time to look at the text, it's in Leviticus Leviticus 1 1 and these are almost the terms some of the terms if you like of what it means to live with the Holy God the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting he said speak to the Israelites and say to them when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd you are to offer a male without defect you must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the lord you are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you you are to slaughter the young bull before the lord and then aaron's sons the priests shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting and yes as i was not as I was reading that, as that was read out earlier on, you know, some of the young kids and my son in particular was wincing. And you could almost 
see them in their youth trying to work out how on earth this passage of kind of butchery was in the Bible. But it is in the Bible. There is here a huge cost. Huge cost for the individual to dwell amongst God and near to where he is. What does God ask them to bring? Bring your best male without defect. You've got you to gotta put yourself, sometimes reading the Bible, you've got to put yourself in the shoes of these people just for a second. These are nomadic shepherds living in the desert. This is already, life is already tough. Do you know what I mean? There's no fresh orange in their fridges. There's no ice cubes for them to cool off in the heat of the day. Life is already harsh. And God says to them, because of your sin, go out into the into your flocks and your herds. You know, go out into your business. Go out into your into the area of life where you make money and pick up your prize asset. Go and get your best thing. That's what God's saying here. And I guess there are there are different um, within the community of God's people. There's different amounts of wealth amongst the people and different amounts of resource. If you read through, you know, the whole of chapter one, you'll see that God just basically says, "Go and get whatever it is the, the best that you have. Go and get that." In this moment, the one that's spotless, the one that's without defect, and go and bring that. And then he says to him, you go and get it. So you've done this sin, or you've had the sense that this sin exists, you know, in and around you and your circumstance. You go and get it. You, you have to look the cow, or whatever it is, or the bull in the eye, and you bring it back through the camp. Do the walk of shame. And then you bring it to the temple front. And you take out the knife. And you slit the throat. This is this is personal. You know, whoever this whoever this guy is who's, who's done this, by the time he's done that, he's got a real sense that this sin matters, that there is a cost. It's his best thing that he's got. It's the most, you know, you know one of his prized possessions, the most money he's got probably the most uh, significant attribute he's got and yet the most significant attribute that's not quite right the most the most expensive thing he's got in, in, amongst all his possessions and he's had to take it right through the camp and slit its throat and then what happens is that you put this offering onto the altar and amongst the people that probably don't eat brilliantly well they don't they don't have a McDonald's on the corner of the street like we do they probably don't eat that great this offering is to be burnt up whole the whole animal is burnt to ash and at the end of the you know there's, there's some stories that the priests might get the hide but the the rest of the animal is is burnt to cinder and then dumped outside of the camp and and nobody eats on the back of this you know people lost and wondering about in the desert this that's where these people are at and they take the best thing that they have and they burn it to the ground and nobody gets a full stomach on the back of it it's like it's like taking your taking your 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 brand new ferrari it's like god saying take that car that's in your yard that you've saved up for for years this, you know, this, that you've had your eye on all this time that you've really wanted, that you've worked hard for. 
take that Ferrari and burn it to the ground. You know, go to a piece of wasteland and take a match, you know, throw some oil on the car or whatever is going to set it alight, burn it to the ground and then arrange for a guy to come and take it to the cap, the cap, to the tip. Can you imagine how that would feel? The sense of cost. When I consider that, there is not, there's not a day goes by when I don't do something either against God's law or our legal system or my own moral compass. If 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 I was facing up to this standard of living, I'd I'd be there every day. I would be making sacrifice after sacrifice. I, I would have no cattle left. My family would starve. God's being holy and me being near Him would be the ruin of me. And you have this building picture of these of the necessity of you know sin after sin after sin after sin. That's sort of the rhythm of life that is explored here in Leviticus of this building picture of all these sins needing to be dealt with and all these sins stacking up. Sins, sins stack up, don't they? I mean, it's it's interesting as, as well how we how we think about sin. It's easy to think of sin, and I think it's often our habit to think about sin as something that just dissipates. That it just eventually disappears we do something wrong you know and because no one sees it or it doesn't hurt anyone else or or I don't know an amount of time passes then the sin just it goes away like like a, like a balloon that floats off you know into thin air eventually it's, it's, it's out of sight completely we think a sin like that you know for a second Maybe it's in your hand and you let go of the balloon and it goes up into the sky a little bit and it's got some sort of association with you. Somebody looking around might say, that's, that's his balloon, he's let it go. You know, but then in a couple of seconds the balloon floats a bit further away and eventually, you know, it's up into the sky and nobody would know it was ever you. You know, eventually it, it, it sort of blows out of sight and it's gone forever, right? I think the Bible gives us a picture of sin. It's a bit like uh, the the human has got a problem with plastics. You know, we have this problem with plastics, don't we? We kind of we've 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 got so much of it, and it's such a it's in such common usage in our everyday. And we think um, we think when we throw them away, these plastic bags or these toys or packages or whatever it is that they're gone altogether. There's that sense in the back of our minds that they've just, you know, they've floated out of sight and they've dissipated. But the truth of it is about, you know, about plastics and we'll we'll watch a documentary in the next couple of weeks some somewhere on the TV channels that'll show us this huge pile of rubbish that exists. You know, either about to be parked in some big hole in China or sort of floating around on some distant sea. You know, all accumulated and sort of covered in flies or whatever else it is. But it's this huge pile of rubbish that exists. That, that that's not going to go away. And and somewhere in the middle of it, it's got you know, there's a bunch of of plastic bags with with my name on it. You know, sin. Sin stacks up. Doesn't just dissipate. Somebody has to pay, and that's the third point. This is where we're going to land. This is where we're going to finish up. With Leviticus 1, somebody has got to pay for all this. 
it costs and and this this idea I think this is the hardest thing for us to think about this is the hardest thing for, for us to think about particularly in the west this idea that somebody needs to pay there's a lot of things about Christianity that I think I think people are willing to roll with and have quite a, an easy time with the idea of God you know some being that exists outside of our realm that I can moan at or I can just pray to, you know, every now and again, yes, people will roll with that idea of a God. And Jesus, this good man who taught well and told, you know, beautiful stories, maybe maybe we'll even accept that he did miracles, yes, okay. Um, but, but the idea of sacrifice, you know, the idea that to make things okay with God, you need to slit the throat of an innocent animal. There needs to be butchery and bloodshed that's an offence and that's it's too big an offence and it's too difficult and it's such an you know in the ethically sort of sensitive west in which we live the, the concept is too alien it's too difficult this idea that god that god's plan would be to set his son on a cross you know a good god puts the good man on a cross. I mean, even the disciples struggled with that idea, and they spent all their time with Jesus. And when it came for that moment, they said, "No, this can't be the right way." And it, and it sort of it brings into into the front of your thoughts this this idea. If, if we're thinking about God, surely, surely that God, you know, without needing a payment, surely God can just forgive. If God is good and He's all powerful, then He can just. He can just overlook. There doesn't need to be a payment. And the answer to that, uh, the answer to that that screams out of the Bible when you want it to be yes is painfully no. There does need to be a payment. And I'm going to try and explain this and I'm going to steal or offer uh, Tim Keller a credit. Yeah, it's a really clever way to explain how we how we can understand forgiveness and it's to think about it like this what happens and when you've got to forgive somebody when you're in that position what happens when somebody does something really bad to you when you are really really wronged by something what is the outcome of that what happens there there is and tell me if i got this wrong there is a tangible sense of the cost of that isn't there there's almost a physical in the pit of your stomach there's a weight that is placed there somebody wrongs you it it exists within the pit of your stomach and you carry it around and then you've got two options in terms of how you might deal with that and get rid of that debt that exists that you're carrying around the first one is to just be horrible to them you know just to over and over again beat them up with it and say bad things about them and not respond to their texts and to malign them and all those sorts of things. And eventually you will sort of erase this debt by bashing it down and you'll get rid of it, you know, over time. It won't be straight away. It won't be with the first insult that flies out of your mouth. But after a while, when you've said enough bad stuff, you'll be able to pay it off. It'll go away. The second option you've got is the, is the good thing and the Christ-like thing is to forgive them. But what happens when you forgive? What do you actually have to do? This thing that exists in your stomach, you've got to bite your lip when you can speak badly of them. You've got to remain calm when you want to 
punch them in the face, you've got to take a long walk and kind of walk it off and deal with it. There is something tangible there that has to be dealt with. You kind of have to wear it until it goes away. But either way you look at it, whichever option, whether you're horrible or whether you're forgiving, there is an actual tangible debt when it comes to forgiveness. There's something that actually has to be dealt with and has to be done. If people are going to dwell with God, this is the story of Leviticus. Somebody has got to deal with the debt. And that really is the storyline. It's not the storyline. It's one of the storylines of the Old Testament scripture. It's kind of always been the story of God's people are looking for somebody who is able to pay the debt. That's what's been happening right throughout the backstory of the Old Testament. You've got a culture of people and built deep into their psyche, you know, as they've experienced living out the reality of these cult-like sacrifices that they've always had in their minds, this need and this eye for and this focus on an animal, a lamb, that would take away the blemish of their sin in order that they might stay near God. Think about the story of Abraham and Isaac. God says to Abraham, go and kill the son who you love, your only son, Isaac. Abraham has got him off to the to the top of this mountain and he's looking round and eventually thank goodness he sees a ram in the thicket and God says no that will do leave the boy alone sacrifice the ram he's got his eye on an animal think about the story of the Passover as God's people are just under the oppression of the Egyptian rulers and God says I'm going to send an angel of death, and it's going to kill all the firstborn, all of them, the Israelites and the Egyptians, indiscriminately, unless there is the blood of an innocent lamb on the doorpost. And in every house around Egypt on that night, there was either a dead boy or girl, or there was a dead lamb. And this nation, this people, had gotten so familiar with and so used to the idea of looking for the Lamb. And this story builds and builds and builds throughout the Old Testament. It builds and builds and builds. Where is this Lamb? And then, one day, John the Baptist sees across the street Jesus. And he says these words, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world he says look look over there behold look 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 can you see this look this is the answer this is the lamb of god it's god's lamb it's perfect it's spotless and it takes away the sin of the world and as you watch the story of jesus you remember the way that he's silent before his persecutors he's spotless and he's sinless you remember him innocent. You remember the blood that pours from his head and side. And all of a sudden this, this idea of sacrifice and this story of the cross that might seem alien when you first run into it. All of a sudden it is the story that makes sense. And what you see is this huge debt. As you look at the story you see the huge debt. And you see and you're aware of the fact that somebody needs to pay. As you consider the whole story and you realise the fact that that it's huge and that you can't pay it. But perhaps for the first time, you've been introduced to the man who 
who can. The person who is perfect and spotless and can pay a huge debt. And maybe you get it. And then maybe if you're a person of faith, you think about the liberties and the hope and the peace that you've enjoyed. And then you maybe for a second you consider that Sometimes as the habit, as you're in the habit of doing like me, that you think that they're just a given and what you realise is that these are not a given, but they are entirely dependent, entirely founded on a lamb who bled out on a cross.